Would you open it with me to Psalm 139? Psalm 139. Now, if you're here and need a Bible, our ushers are coming down the aisles right now, ready to hand a Bible to you. Just slip up your hand, and that way you can follow along with your eyes as well as your ears. Uh, we want to welcome Chris and Jess Stout to church this morning. They have the new addition to their household. Joshua Victor is with us. And did I say that correctly? I did. And so uh, please welcome them. I can't wait to lay my eyes on that baby. But he has uh, facilitated our congregational reading for the morning. So he's going to put up on the screen the verses that we're going to read. And we're going to read through these verses in Psalm 139. We're going to start with verse 7. And we're going to go on through verse 14. I'll read verse 7, if you'll read verse 8. I'll read verse 9, you read verse 10, and so forth. Psalm 139, verses 7 through 14, but can I invite you to stand with me, please, for the reading of God's Word. Psalm 139, beginning at verse 7, we find, the psalmist writes and he says, Where can I go from your spirit? Or where can I flee from your presence? Verse 8. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, if I say... Surely the darkness shall fall on me, even the night shall be light about me. For you formed my inward parts, you covered me in my mother's womb. Will you pray with me, please? Lord, what a fresh reminder of your omnipresence that you are everywhere at all times. And that means you are here. You are with us. We sense your presence today. We ask, Lord, that you would, by your Holy Spirit, and by your grace, lift these words from the page that we will study. And that you, in your own precious way, would make the application necessary in each and every life. Begin with mine, I pray, Lord. And we ask it now in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Please be seated. While you have your Bible in your hand, will you now turn all the way to the right to the book of Philemon in the New Testament, toward the end of the New Testament, the book of Philemon, page 1664 in my Bible, I'm not sure what it is in yours. We begin a new book study today. I'm not sure how far we'll get. My intent is to divide it into two weekends, 
this weekend and next. It's a short one-chapter book, the book of Philemon, total of some 25 verses there. And I would encourage you, if you have not read the book recently or have not read it at all, later today, take some time before the close of your day and read through these 25 verses. You can read this in, in a matter of 10 minutes, 15 minutes. Because we're going to introduce the book, but also get into a few of the verses this morning, as we are privileged also to be able to take communion together today. But I'd like to begin with a few comments, helping us to know that the book of Philemon is a unique book in Paul's writings. It's the only letter that is of a private nature. Yes, as we studied First and Second Timothy and Titus, the pastoral epistles, they have a, a, a bit of privacy to them in that they are two leaders in the church. But they were commended for the public reading so that the entire church would know what leaders were required to do and be and what, how the church was to respond in that leadership. But here in the book of Philemon, there's no command for public reading in this book. It is clearly a private book. And so it is interesting that the book addressed is addressed to a, a layman, Philemon. And the occasion of which the book is written, really, I would call it commonplace in the life of Christians that gather regularly in what is called the church, because Paul is going to deal with something very common and to be common in our lives, which is forgiveness. It's the only sample of probably countless letters that Paul may have written to disciples, to friends. And this fragment being rescued for us and for canonization in Scripture, though we don't know how necessarily it was rescued, it was rescued. And I'd like to share something with you that Commentator Lightfoot writes, he says, nowhere else in this is the social influence of the gospel more strikingly exerted. Nowhere does the nobility of, nobility of the apostles' character receive a more vivid illustration than in this accidental pleading on behalf of a runaway slave. Yes, the book deals with a runaway slave by the name of Onesimus. And have you even mentioned the word? We might be taken off of YouTube or canceled by the BLM community. But I am true to scripture. That's what took place. It is written, as I said, to a man named Philemon who lived in the city of Colossae more most likely was born there. And he was converted to Christianity by the Apostle Paul. 
More than likely, during Paul's stay in Ephesus, he met Philemon, led him to faith in Christ. And what we come to find out through just the internal evidence of the book itself is that Philemon became second only to Epaphras to the preaching of the gospel there in Colossae itself. He was on fire for the message that Christ saves. So much so that he opened his home to Christians to meet regularly. And there in that small community, his house became a place of comfort, of safety, of refuge for Christians to gather regularly. And Philemon himself was spoken very highly of. But the letter involves, is inclusive of, three other individuals. And they come to us through the text itself. I'll draw your attention to verse 1. Paul writes and he says, Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus and Timothy, our brother, to Philemon, our beloved friend and fellow laborer, to the beloved Aphia, Archippus, our fellow soldier, and to the church in your house, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. So we come immediately into contact with Aphia, addressed in the text itself, uh, a believer belonging again to the, the area of Colossae, which was a, a Phrygian city now known as Turkey, right? And as she is spoken of as a, a dearly beloved or our sister and believed to be, of course, the wife of Philemon. The next individual included in this address is Archippus. His name means master of the horse, if you're taking notes today. And he was also a Christian in the city of Colossae. And he was a, com a conspicuous champion of the gospel. He was a close friend of Philemon and obviously an officer uh, a bearer of leadership in the church, according to not only Philemon chapter 2, but Colossians 4.17. And because of the spiritual atmosphere in the city of Colossae, God placed certain individuals to be soldiers for the cross and soldiers for Christ. But the third individual that the letter involves and is clearly about is none other than a man named Onesimus. And Onesimus becomes far more important to the history of Christianity than the parents or the wife or the son of the family servant. You see, his name was a common name for slaves. It meant utility or worth. But because he was a servant, he was a man that was 
associated with having no rights at all. Because he was a slave to Philemon, he owned nothing. He had no rights. And yet the text, as you go through the book and you read it later, shows us that he inevitably had offended Philemon, taking something that wasn't his and without permission leaving. So this servant becomes a runaway slave. It is true that in Rome, the dregs of society could get lost. You could run to Rome and, and there was so much uh, impropriety going on there that you could just kind of mingle in the crowd and get lost and no one would know where you were or what you were doing. But listen, this book is clearly also not only about forgiveness, but about the sovereignty and omniscient of God. Because although Onesimus wanted to go somewhere and be hidden, God knew where Onesimus was. God knows where you are. He knows your heart. He knows not only your physical address, but your moral address and your spiritual address. This book shows us that you, you can run, but you can't hide from God. And no matter what you've done in your life, no matter what you've done as a child of the living God, forgiveness is available in the precious blood of Christ. That's what Philemon deals with, the book itself. Because Onesimus flees to Rome, and we don't know what it is that drew Onesimus to the Apostle Paul. There's, there's no internal evidence, there's no external evidence of what drew Onesimus to, in Rome of all places, populated city to find Paul the Apostle. Perhaps, conjecture, while Onesimus was a slave in Philemon's home, he heard the name Paul, or he could gather certain information about this person named Paul who had led Philemon to Christ. But when Onesimus leaves, he's not a Christian yet. It wouldn't have meant much to him. It could have been physical hunger. Maybe this man named Paul will help me get a meal from time to time. Or maybe, in fact, it was his conscience. Knowing that things weren't right. But whatever the case, what we do know, the scripture bears it out. It's not conjecture anymore is that once he was in Paul's grip, he couldn't escape. He listened. He was convinced of his need for the Savior. He surrendered his life to Christ and was even baptized. And what Paul gained in that exchange was not just another Christian individual, but 
as as the text tells us, he gained a son, another son in the faith. He gained a companion. He gained someone that could stay with him in Rome while he was under house arrest. And so for Paul to willingly send Onesimus back to Philemon, which is declared in the text here, for Paul to willingly send Onesimus back was going to require a great sacrifice. In fact, verse 12 tells us that it was like tearing Paul's heart out to send Onesimus back. But even though the sacrifice was large on Paul's part, it would be even larger on Onesimus' part, and I'll read, if you'll forgive me for that. But there was a pressing reason for this sacrifice. Onesimus had repented, but he had not made restitution. He could only do this by submitting again to the servitude from which he had escaped. Philemon must be made to feel that which Onesimus, that when Onesimus was won to Christ, he was won back to his old master as well. But if the claim of duty demanded a greater sacrifice from Paul, it demanded even a greater sacrifice still from Onesimus because by returning to Philemon, he would place himself entirely at the mercy of his previous master whom he had wronged. Listen, Roman law was more cruel than Athenian law. And Philemon could operate under Roman law, which gave limitless power to the master over the slave. Life and death remained in Philemon's hands. Slaves were constantly crucified for smaller offenses than what Onesimus had done. And as a thief and a runaway slave, he had no claim to forgiveness for himself. That's the backdrop. That's the setting in which this book is given. This story is told. This message is spoken. And it becomes imperative to you and I to recognize two things, in my humble opinion, leap off the page as you go through this book. Number one, Are you a Christian today that has been wronged by anyone or any situation? Forgiveness you are called to employ. But secondly, that if you have wronged another, you must submit yourself to the mercy of God. And ask for that forgiveness yourself. You can't hide from God. And if you've experienced forgiveness, you must also be forgiving of others. Those things to me 
are paramountly here, at least in this first half. We read verses 1 through 3, but I want to highlight two things in verses 1 and 2, that Paul is a prisoner of Christ Jesus. He sees himself as someone also now with no rights. I hope that none of you ever have experienced jail, but let me tell you, when you're in jail, you don't have any rights. The jailer has the key. They determine when you eat, when you sleep, how you can go to the bathroom, the amount of people you're going to spend time with, because you're a prisoner. Most of your rights have been taken from you. And Paul, in this beautiful letter, says, I'm a prisoner of Christ. What a no greater prisoner to be. And he recognizes that Philemon also is this individual who has opened up his home to Christians. The church that is in your house, verse 2. I'd like to remind us this morning that, you know, the building, the chairs, the carpet, the camera, the sound system, all of this, you know, they can be trappings. They, you can begin to think that this is comfortable and this is how it's supposed to be. But, hey, the church began where? In the home. The church is to exist where? In the home. You don't come to church. You've heard us say it a thousand times. You are the church. And so, since you are the church, how much of the church exists in your home? Could you open your home today to other Christians and feel comfortable? Could you welcome them and say, hey, yeah, this is a, this is a place of worship. This is a house of God. Just asking. I would believe that that's the heart of the Lord. That every one of his children should be able to open the front door of their lives and say, hey, come on in. This is me. This is how I live. And as you come in this house, you will experience or come to grips with Christ is our all in all. Are we perfect? No. Deal with that in a few minutes and a few verses. But is Christ centered in your home? The church in the house. This is just a building. You could take this away. We're very thankful we have it. 13 years in the school, setting up and tearing down. Many of you are here for that. This is, this is just a place. You and I are the church. And it should be echoed in our homes. And that classic Pauline greeting, right there in verse 3, right? Grace and peace to you. From God the Father, from the Lord Jesus Christ. Why grace? In so many of Paul's greetings, why does he emphasize grace to you? 
peace to you, grace to you. Why? Because of, of all that we have of the writers in the New Testament, Paul understood the trappings of the law more than any. The law. The law of God, the jot and the tittle, the, the do this, don't do that, and then that equals okay in God's eyes. Be this way, don't be that way, and now you're accepted in God's eyes. The New Testament covenant doesn't approach a relationship with God in that way. No. What does John tell us? And we did behold him full of grace and truth. The only begotten of the Father. When Christ came, he came to help those that wanted to know God to know grace. Romans is filled with Paul's struggle about the law and he tells us finally uh, that what the law could not do in that it was weak in the flesh God did by sending his only begotten son and what does that say to us today this morning it should remind us that we aren't to put the uh, the qualifying grid on people's lives There should be nothing that comes out of our mouth that is saying yes to someone or no to someone that you're, you're an okay Christian or a good Christian or you're a Christian. Hey, God's in charge of that. Yes, there is a place for discipleship, church discipline, and those things, but why does Paul begin all of his letters with a greeting of grace because of the importance of grace you are who you are and I am who I am in Christ how by the grace of God unmerited favor so we should never expect others to meet some righteous requirement before we tag them as born-again, bonafide believers in Christ, be gracious. In verse 4 through 7, Paul continues his greeting. I draw your attention to it. He says, I thank my God making mention of you always in my prayers hearing of your love and faith which you have toward the Lord Jesus and toward all the saints, that the sharing of your faith may become effective by the acknowledgement of every good thing which is in you in Christ Jesus. For we have great joy and consolation in your love because the hearts of the saints have been 
refreshed by you, brother. Several things caught my attention in that passage. One, that even where Paul was, he had heard of Philemon's love of Jesus and love for the saints. Philemon's love for the Lord Jesus and Philemon's love of the saints. Why do I underscore that this morning? Well, because it's impossible for you to say, I love Jesus, but hold in your heart some hatred or dislike for a brother or sister in the Lord. First John, the ladies are studying it on Thursdays. First John 4.20, if someone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. Liar, liar, pants on fire. He said, well, I, don't, I wouldn't hate them. What constitutes hate? A great dislike. An unwillingness to express 1 Corinthians love that believes all things, hopes all things, keeps no record of wrongs. Oh, I love Jesus, love Jesus. I'm not so sure I like that guy. Love Jesus, love Jesus. I don't like being around. Love Jesus. Just saying, there's a biblical inconsistency there. And with Philemon, we see that the love of his love for Jesus and his love for the saints walked hand in hand. And before, you know, if I were Philemon, if you were Philemon, we'd be reading this and you could almost start to just go, oh, gee, he really, you know, he's, I've got it together here. I'm really doing a good work in the body of Christ. And then Paul reminds him of who it is in him that is good. We read it, right? He said that the sharing of your faith may become effective by the acknowledgement of every, verse 6, every good thing which is in you in Christ Jesus. In other words, all that good that's happening in you, Philemon, all that good that I'm acknowledging is taking place, your love for the Lord, your love for his saints, the church in your home, that's Christ in you is the good. Paul in his wrestle in the book of Romans reminds us Romans 3.12, there are none good, no, not one. And we have the Apostle Paul saying to us in Romans chapter 7, verse 8, he says, For I know that in me, that is in my flesh, there dwells no good thing. Now this might be a, a, a bit of solid meat for us to chew on this morning. But what I want to remind us is that if the Bible is our final authority for faith and practice, 
That's a big if. See, for me, it's not if. It's since, okay? So I'm going to take us a quantum leap forward for everybody that's listening to my voice, everybody watching at home, everybody in this room. Since the Bible is our final authority for faith and practice as Christians, there's no other authority. This, this is how we're to live. This is where we get our instruction. This is where we get our truth. This is where we get all that we would need for faith and practice. It says there's no good thing in us. It says you're no good. Go ahead, say it. I'm no good. Hallelujah. That's a revelation. That should be a wonderful revelation in the heart of every Christian man, woman, and young person. I'm no good. Well, I thought it was kind of good here, there. You know, not so bad. And tongue-in-cheek, we kind of know what that means. But if we're going to adhere to a biblical Christianity, then no, we're not good. There is no good thing in us except Christ. Christ is the good in you if he is in you today. If he is in you today, Christ is the good in me. And apart from that, there is nothing good in us. It's solid food. It's solid meat. It is biblical truth that is valuable for each of us to embrace. And Paul reminds Philemon that even though there's a lot of these good things going on, he's just giving thanks for every good thing which is in you, which is in Christ. And he reminds Philemon that he, being a vessel through which Christ is operating, his life refreshes the saints. Do you see that there in verse 7? For we have great joy and consolation in your love because the hearts of the saints have been refreshed by you, brother. Philemon had this gift of when people came into his presence, when they crossed his life path, when they came into his home, those saints, they left refreshed. And don't we as Christians need refreshing? Don't we need to be washed and, and refreshed in the spirit? Not condemned and put down and judged and, and made sure we're right or made sure we're wrong. No, I, when I go in someone's company, man, I want to walk away and go, <laughs> I feel like I've been washed and refreshed. Philemon had that gift. And so now, laying this foundation of, of the character of who Philemon is, Paul moves to the point. He moves very succinctly to the point. In verse 8, he says, and this is a powerful passage. I, mean, I read it and reread it and read it again and went, wow. He says, verse 8, follow with me. He says, therefore, remember what the therefore is there for? The therefore is to remind me to take into consideration all that is therefore. 
Therefore, though I might be very bold in Christ to command you what is fitting, yet for love's sake I rather appeal to you, being such a one as Paul, the aged, and now also a prisoner of Jesus Christ, I appeal to you for my son Onesimus, whom I have begotten while in my chains, who once was unprofitable to you, but now is profitable to you and to me. I am sending him back. You, therefore, receive him. That is my own heart. Powerful. A little paraphrasing. Philemon, I'm the apostle, Paul, and I could command you, but I'm not going to exercise that authority. I'm going to use a more common and understandable way of dealing with a difficult situation. I'm going to appeal to you. I wish I had more time because this subject of appealing goes further than just Paul's appeal to Philemon. It enters many corridors of life, one of which is marriage, where a husband feels he can command A wife feels that she can dictate or manipulate. When you find a husband and a wife that are willing to set those natural inclinations aside and appeal to one another about what's important in their heart, what's necessary for their relationship to flourish and grow, it goes a long way. And Paul understands the power of an appeal. So rather than command, he, for love's sake, did you see it? For what sake? For Paul's sake? For Philemon's sake? For the body of Christ's sake? For, no, for the sake of the love of God, I'm going to appeal to you. I'm Paul, the aged. Oh my goodness, he... He, isn't that great? He, so I'm getting older is basically what he's saying. I'm getting older. I'm older than you, Philemon. I'm your senior in the Lord. I'm your senior in life. And this guy that wronged you, when he came to me, I was able to bring him to faith in Christ. I've begotten him in the Lord. He's now a son in the faith, in other words, is what Paul is saying. And we get back to the main thing which we started on earlier is that Onesimus couldn't hide from God. You and I can't hide from God. God is seeking to do a work in your life and mine. And we can put up walls and hang curtains and try to 
you know, skirt the issues. But two questions I have for you this morning, which are always powerful to me here as your pastor and as a Bible teacher is, is number one, what did uh, God bring you to Calvary Chapel for? And what did God bring me into your life for? And I'll tell you, 25 plus years here, God has brought every one of you to teach me something. Something that I need to learn and employ in my life that I can learn no other way but by accepting your presence in my life. But what did he bring you here for? I appeal to you this morning to consider that. You can't hide from the deep things that God wants to do. And what we find is that even though this runaway slave was unprofitable to you, Philemon, he's now become not only profitable to me, but profitable to you too. And I'm going to send him back. And here's what I need you, and I'm appealing to you, and I, I ask of you. Forgive him. Because that's my heart. And why is that relative this morning as we contemplate taking a cup and a wafer? Here's why. It's because if you've been forgiven this morning, the Spirit of God appeals to you to be forgiving of others. And it begins right now. Maybe you came in here not bearing any unforgiveness but maybe you came bearing some. And what these first few verses teach us is that the authority of Scripture, the love of God and the grace of our Savior appeal to this, this work of the Spirit in our heart. Yeah, I've been wronged. I didn't really like how they treated me. I didn't like how he treats me, she treats me. I didn't like... The circumstance in his life. There are people I could. Uh, 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 uh. Yet, have you experienced the forgiveness of God this morning? Been brought into this wonderful thing called the family of God by the forgiveness of one who, even while you and I were yet sinners, died for us that we might know the forgiveness of God and bring the message of the forgiveness of God into the world in which we live by modeling it and exampling it in our everyday life. Have you been hiding from that? 
running from that? You can't. Two things. Can't hide from God. And if you've been forgiven, God says, I will empower you by my spirit. Be forgiving of others. That's the message this morning. That's why we read Psalm 139. That's why we read these first few verses. And so I invite you now joyfully to recognize that, oh, this is what God's asking of me. The joy of being obedient to forgive. Start clean, fresh, and that God has started clean and fresh with you and I in Christ. Will you join me as we close in a word of prayer? Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word this morning, for the clear, heartfelt appeal of the Apostle Paul to this precious man who loved loved you and loved the body of Christ and yet now is being appealed to for one of the hardest things he would ever do in his life. It reminds us of the difficulty of forgiveness for us today sometimes and yet the power and the ability of the Spirit of God working in us. Lord, as we prepare our heart to remember how you have forgiven us, how you placed yourself willingly on the cross and offered to everyone who believes grace, we now receive. And as well, we ask that you would continue your good work in us for your glory. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen and amen.